Heads up, Nick Fury's calling you. I don't really want to talk to Nick Answer Fury. Answer the phone. Why? Because if you don't talk to him, then I have to talk to him. I don't want to talk to him. You sent Nick Fury to voicemail? I gotta go. You do not ghost Nick Fury. What up, dorks? What's up? We're just talking about the trip. I'm here in St. Marco Polo's. Oh, I think MJ really likes me. That reminds me when I first fell in love. You're a very difficult person to contact, Spider-Man. This is Mr. Beck. Who could use someone like you on my world? New world? Beck is from Earth, just not ours. The snap to our hole in our dimension. You're saying there's a multiverse? We have a job to do. I invited Danny to come to Sweden. You know what she's been going through? Christian says you've got this special week planned. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. Unbelievable. Welcome and happy midsummer. Skull! What time is it? 9 p.m. That can't be right. The sky is blue. This is what 9 p.m. is like here. Hello and welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, your host Rob Daniel, editor of electric-shadows.com. And as always, I am very happy to say I am joined by my learned, my resplendent co-host, Mr. Rob Wallace. And as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. And your editor of? I'm an editor of of all the, of all the film sites, uh, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. And you can follow me on Twitter at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast, some others that I hadn't really heard of but were there anyway. Um, Although or- admittedly, if you are yet to find the podcast... We recommend that you go and to speak to someone because yes. this is clearly playing out in your head. Yes, that's right. Where is Where are you getting all this from? Picking, picking up on their molars. Yeah, yes, that's right, yeah. If you're hearing this through a filling in your tooth, I'll take that download. That's fine. <laughs> it's, all, it's all consumption. Do they show up on the stats? Um, only the CIA ones. Only the CIA ones, that's right. Yeah, I don't think the SoundCloud's internal stat... Um, Algorithm can pick up on That's the- right. Yeah, if you are listening to it on your molars, but you want to listen to it another way, yes, you can do that. Or you can just Google the Electric Shadows podcast and see what is the best platform for you to listen on. So, yes, if you still want to listen after that, because that got a bit weird, didn't it? Well, it's been a while, hasn't it? It's- it has. We're a, little bit, we're a little bit out of practice, I think. I think so, because the last one was Godzilla, and that was about a month ago. So apologies for the delay and getting another one to you. Um, holidays, I think, uh, one of the reasons why we haven't done one. And, of course, you were in a play. Yes, I was. That took uh, that took up two weeks. Well, more than, but, uh, yeah, con- solidly took up two weeks in my life. Um, Which was Wolf Hall and bring, Bringing Up the Bodies. Bring Up the Bodies. Bring Up the Bodies. Um, yeah, for which I just want to say, I want to take a moment to say thank you very much to uh, Mr. Mr. Daniel for allowing me to st- uh, keep it his on numerous occasions. And if Ben Ilsley, our colleague and friend Ben, happens to overhear this, thank you very much for letting me stay at your uh, lovely flat while you were away at Glastonbury. Oh, well, yes, that's right, yeah, because it coincided with Glasto, didn't it? Yeah. Absolute pleasure. I mean, really, you were getting in at about 11 every night, and that was fine. <laughs> I mean, it was like all I had to do was stay up for you, and to be honest, you just had to phone me to wake me up, so that was all good. And the play seems to go all right as well. Yeah, it went, it went very well. And you have another play coming up, don't you? Uh, yeah, a short play is part of uh, Fest Norwood, a festival of short plays that's going up on August 9th at uh, South London Theatre. Excellent. 
South London Theatre. That's good. August 9th. That's fine. And the website for that is probably southlondontheatre.co.uk or something. Yes, yeah, I'm sure if you type it into the, <laughs> type it into the magic word box, it'll... We're so good at self-promotion. <laughs> yeah, if you just type in these things, you might find out what I'm doing. It's well worth a look. But anyway, um, are there any other plugs? Which Oh, yes. And um, if you like what you're hearing, and let's face it out, couldn't you? You can also leave us a review, which will be very good. And it's always good to get some feedback. Please leave us a review. <laughs> I always find that begging brings out the best in people. Um, just, yeah, sh- shameless. Just shameless begging for some kind of feedback. It doesn't just have to be positive. Please make it positive. Any negative feedback will eat at me for the rest of my days. Like some massive tick gorged under my skin, slowly filling with bile until... I'm found at the top of a tower somewhere with a high-powered rifle <laughs> saying, they said my insights were insipid. They said the editing was choppy. Wow. Uh, so we've, we've gone from people picking up our podcast on their molars to um, actually... <laughs> yeah. Do you know why? I think it's because I've been watching almost exclusively recently. No, actually, no, I did watch... I've watched almost all of Stranger Things. I have one more ep to go of season three. It's very good. Uh, but I've been watching that Waco dramatisation on Alibi with Michael Shannon and Taylor Kitsch. It's good. I have certain issues with it. I think it's overly sympathetic to David Koresh. I don't think it shows just how fucking weird it was in the compound. Also, is it, it's um, Taylor Kitsch who plays Koresh, right? Yeah, yeah. How can you position the guy who's meant to be, like, presumably the quite intense cult leader against Michael Shannon? <laughs> Well, that's actually one Do of they the... just have like a bug fuck crazy off? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the very good things about it is that Michael Shannon is kind of playing against type in that he's grounded, very um, measured, yeah, really rational and calm. And he's the kind of guy you, you can see would be talking these people out of their gun-laden houses. So presumably um, the crazy only came out every time they called cut. The, 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 the mask of just of like calm just slipped and his eyes just assumed the usual yeah, glare true. of manic intensity. <laughs> that's right. Goes full Zod. Um, but uh, but yeah, it is very good. But I think it's the atmosphere of slight hysteria and madness that um, I've been ingesting through watching Waco is now being to feed out onto the podcast. So enjoy. Yeah, enjoy. I mean, how could you not want that? This room is our compound. Wait, you, will... you, you just made me a coffee. And <laughs> yes. oh, no. how you will bear my children. My children of the light. Well, you know, I'm not doing anything. Doing... They have angels' wings. <laughs> now, have you had a baby, Rob? You don't have a womb. <laughs> Believe it or not, we're talking about Spider-Man today. <laughs> Slightly punchy on this one. I don't know why. Anyway, yeah, we, so... We took the X-Files route to get to Spider-Man. But... We did take the X-Files route to get to Spider-Man, indeed. Uh, okay, cool. So, if you're still with us, we will now properly go into the general film discussion, and it won't be as weird until we get to Midsummer, because we'll be looking at two films today. Very, very different. First one's Spider-Man Far From Home, so the latest Spider-Man film, the latest film from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. First Spidey film after Endgame, or the first Marvel Cinematic Universe film after Endgame. Then we'll be moving into Midsummer. The freaky Ariaster cult movie. So a cult-themed movie. And we both have lots of things to say about that. And Rob thinks we can do it without spoilers. So I am going to hold him at his word. And we'll see how that goes. So we'll have a brief 
hiatus from the Waco talk, uh, but then when we get into uh, to Colts and into Midsummer, well, it's going to have to come back again. <laughs> anyway, so without further ado, let's go on to Spider-Man Far From Home. This is the second Spidey film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but of course the third appearance of Spider-Man in His Marvel Cinematic Universe. first film. being Captain America Civil War. Yes, that's right, yeah. yeah. And I always maintain that was such well, a misstep to put him in the trailer. His fifth if you count both Infinity War and, and, and Endgame as well. God, yeah, yeah. It's his fifth, isn't it? But I always think it was a massive misstep to put him in the trailer for Civil War. Because it would have been such a reveal. It would have been a reveal. And also, I think it's one of those that people would have tried to keep the secret as well. When you watch Civil War, it's clear you're not supposed to know who it is. It's slowly revealed over the course of a few minutes that you are looking at Peter Parker and that's Aunt May. You're not supposed to know that. And it would have been so brilliant if you didn't know that. And had the experience my mum had, who had no idea Spider-Man was in that film when she went to see it. And had a really nice surprise when she realised it was Spider-Man. The audience that I saw it with would have gone fucking mad if they hadn't have known that was coming. It would have been one of the best cinema I mean, experiences. Yeah, it's great knowing who it is. It would have been amazing not. Yeah. Just the jubilation, especially... It would have been jubilation, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it, it would have been absolute euphoria. And it would have been such... It, it just would have been one of those great moments of cinema that you're just happy to be there with a huge crowd. I see, it's, it's weird, because the, um, the MCU doesn't officially have... Well, they've, they've, they've got other films we know are coming up, but they haven't officially announced what the next one is. It's likely to be um, Black Widow. But imagine at this point, if they just not... Obviously, you need to market the damn things, but did find a way to do it a bit more organically when all of a, so that they could do stuff like that. So they could do stuff like being like, you know, drop the Fantastic Four into another film without announcing they're going to be in it. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I thought... I wondered if Spidey in the trailer was more of a Sony call than... Maybe. They might they might call. have been a, hey guys, you're going to use them, you need to... Yeah. Because of course, Sony kind of lease out Spider-Man to Marvel to be in the MCU. Uh, there is still some ownership of the character there. And they're doing very well of him. Uh, they really are. Because of course, this is also the first Spidey film, not including Endgame, which wasn't really a Spidey film, but he was in it, since Spider-Verse. Which is really good. Which won the uh, the best animated feature at uh, the Oscars. That's right. And was a film that I only saw about four weeks ago because I totally missed it at the cinema. And then they had a one-day IMAX event where they were showing different IMAX films and I tried to get a ticket to see it then and didn't because it was completely sold out and it was like, I don't know, 10 in the morning or something like that and the tickets were just gone immediately. It's like, okay, so this film is really visually amazing then. So basically did a blind buy in 4K to watch it on my amazing new 4K telly <laughs> and watched it a couple of Saturdays ago. And yeah, uh, if I'd have seen it last year, it would have been in my top 10 of the year easily. It's brilliant. Yeah, the one thing I find a bit disappointing is is the lack of shading when it comes to Kingpin as the villain. I just think they could have done more. If they'd done a bit more with Kingpin, I would have been all over that. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't think of it as him. I kind of thought, not to spoil it or anything, but there were so many other elements to it and like another baddie in a way that is also like a big reveal that has like an emotional punch to it as well and there is one line in that film i'm now thinking of which does basically sum up our approach to this podcast what's that one yes it can get weirder yes it can get weirder (laughs) yeah that is actually yeah we should get t-shirts with that written on yeah it always sounds like a cop-out when you say well the visuals were just so amazing that it kind of suggests there was a lack elsewhere but no the visuals were part of the brilliance of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse just the imagination with which that story was told and also the um, just the way that it went into the whole multiverse thing it's... the only thing that I really had against it was that Fat Spider-Man 
Yeah, right, whatever. Yeah. It's like has, has he a, is has, not Fat Spider-Man. Has Spider a bit of a belly on him. Has a bit of a belly on him. I was like, that's Fat Spider-Man. Mm. That's, he has a bit of a belly on him. But yes, what a great film it is. Um, um, I'm talking about so visuals, on. not so much in terms of actually necessarily possessing them but obviously um i don't know how i don't know are we gonna we're avoiding spoilers for far from home oh yeah yeah um yeah because okay uh, let's say visuals of course how things how things look are quite an important aspect of far from home yes indeed yeah that's right and yeah we can kind of skirt around that in just a bit but um yeah so obviously this is the first one since endgame or the first mcu film since endgame half the population of the planet nay the universe have just what we're going to call it, blipped back into existence. That's right. And um, are we going to do spoilers for Endgame? Uh, a I, film that made three they spoil million... It the, they spoil it in the trailer. They do, don't they? That's right, yes. So, of course, this is a world without Iron Man. So Tony Stark made the ultimate sacrifice at the end of Endgame. We do have a friend, Chloe, who didn't know that when she went to see Spider-Man because she hadn't seen Endgame and spent the first five minutes think, saying, what? As, what? <laughs> is Iron Man dead? <laughs> so how did you not see Endgame? I just didn't get around to it. But I think people who did, didn't did, mean she, to see did she not see Infinity War? No, and that's the thing is that she did. Because presumably, see... otherwise, she would have been like, why is Spider Man alive again? Yeah, she hadn't got around to Infinity War and said, well, should I watch Endgame? It's like, yeah, but you can't watch it without Infinity War because it won't really make much sense. Because it's the payoff. But also, Infinity War is such a, a middling film that I'm. Ugh. But then I do think Endgame is a really good film, so maybe I don't know. Um, so yeah, with Far From Home, we're now living in a post Iron Man world, but obviously his uh, his presence, as it were, is still very much felt. Peter's back in high school and trying to get on with his life, you know, along with half of his classmates who've now popped back into existence at the same point he has. Luckily, pretty much everybody he knows seems to have been the half that disappeared. Otherwise. Yes, there's no one... Um, like Aunt so May M- Wen, yes, MJ indeed. Wen, Ned Wen. Yeah, MJ isn't like 22 or something, yeah. so therefore he can still... Well, he can still try for her as his girlfriend. And Flash and Flash Wen. Yeah. Okay, I mean, yeah, so... But, yeah. And, and, and now, in the wake of them all popping back into existence, uh, they go on a field trip to Europe. But Nick Fury essentially decides that he needs, given that Spider-Man is one of the few remaining Avengers and I think the only one currently available, he needs his help in combating uh, elemental forces, which he does with the aid of uh, Mysterio, a new hero played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. And saying this, it's nice to finally see Jake Gyllenhaal in the Spider-Man film because obviously years ago when the first fight Spider-Man film was in development under James Cameron, he was meant to be in the role. Was no, it, not was it Cameron? Was it Cameron? No, because um, Cameron was the early nineties. Was it um, so? Who was meant to be in the role under? Was he? Or was he meant to be the Raimi Spider Man? Yeah, well, the, well, that was the thing. Was so Cameron? Do you know who was kind of mooted at one point? Michael Bean. And he wasn't going. It wasn't well, I mean, going to be a teen Spider Man. Peter either. Parker would have been. Yeah, I know that Peter Parker is meant to be traumatized by the death of his uncle Ben. But no, it's like, yeah. Jesus, what happened? I think he shot Uncle Ben. I think he did it. <laughs> yeah, dude. He's so. This is a Vietnam vet Spider Man. So Cameron was early nineties because uh, I think it was after Terminator Two. He decided, yes, we have got the special effects to do this. The one real big bit of Cameron's original treatment that then went over into the Raimi one, which was a decade later, was the organic web slinger. Because Cameron said, well, I just, don't, I just don't buy that a kid could make this tech. So therefore... And also it's a great metaphor for... Yeah, if, Changes if, in your exactly, body when you're if, yeah, if, Exactly. If you read Spider-Man as a metaphor for puberty, as, as, as yeah. you read, yes. And, um, and when he swings 
or slings his web, he feels euphoric and swing them. He feels like he can fly and, um, and feels weightless. And it's really sticky and, um, and it gets everywhere. Then, real, then the real world smacks him in the face. And then the real world smacks him in the face and he literally comes down with a bang at some point. Yeah, so it's really true to life. But Jake Gyllenhaal, I think, I'm not sure if he was in the running for the original casting. I think he might have been. And there was definitely some talk around Spider-Man 2 it was Spider-Man 2 where they were looking at replacing Tobey Maguire who's being who's who's being ul- difficult yeah alternate accounts say you know obviously oh he didn't he'd injured his back yeah but yeah the uh, the scuttlebutt is that he was being difficult so they were going to then bring in a new Spider-Man and Jake Gyllenhaal I think was a front runner for that because Donnie Darko had blown up really big by that point and he yeah was seen as a as a credible leading man for that sort of film there is actually quite a funny moment in Spider-Man 2 when he loses his powers and there's one point where he thinks he's got them back so he jumps off that building. And, and he lands on the, the car, car and he gets up and he, and he kind of hobbles off, which is, yeah. And says, ow, my back. Or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is the reason why I said that because the whole, whole back thing. That's fine. <laughs> um, Don't make me send you to the praying room, Rob. <laughs> but yeah, so they go off to Europe. They go on this trip which takes them to Venice, and it did remind me, I thought, is this going to be the National Lampoon's European vacation of MCU films? And it isn't that. They do actually have some ideas. It's not just putting them in like a different setting, but it's the same story. They do have some ideas of how to advance the characters. As you said, it's like, this is a world after Endgame, so Iron Man's no longer around. Uh, So Peter Parker is dealing with trying to fill that role. And it's heavily suggested that Tony Stark has entrusted the leadership of the Avengers to him as well. Yeah, which doesn't quite... One thing, one 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 criticism I, I, I heard, and I kind of agree, when did he do all this? Yes, I was thinking that. Yeah, is it one of the things that he forward planned for all different eventualities before he died? Because in Endgame, there's the hologram thing, isn't it? Yeah. Of course, for his daughter. But you kind of think, well, I can see that, because it is going to be this huge thing. You know what happened last time, you know how difficult it was. Maybe then he thought, well, actually, I might not make it back from this, so therefore I need to hand over the reins to someone else, and if it's Peter Parker, this. Maybe there's like a whole load of contingencies he had. There's one that Thor would be getting, or that Captain America would be getting. Of course, it's also suggested in this film that Captain America has also expired. I think the implication is that I just don't think anybody knew he came back. I think he's just disappeared, and the assumption oh, is he's right. dead. And the, the, the public assumption is he's dead. Because it is a young picture of him in, yeah. the, in the newspaper. Oh, oh, I wasn't sure if it was that he just died of old age. But, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, I think you're right. So that would be a good MacGuffin in terms of, like, you know, having his, you know, uh, Iron Man's contingency plans pop up in future films as MacGuffins. Or, like, not not ludicrously. You don't, we don't need another, like, we don't need another set of Infinity Stones. But, it's, it's, yeah, they could be used to drive the plot and bring people back to Earth as necessary. It could be quite interesting, yeah, to have that. And so it almost turns into, well, maybe not now you see me, where it's like, no, Tony has thought of every single possible eventuality. I do not like, no, you, see, probabil- now you see me. With his probability machine and has planned this all out. Yeah, it is just explained away that Thor's off somewhere. And I don't think he asks about Hulk, does he? Um, no, he doesn't. Because he says, what about Captain Marvel? And Nick Fury says, don't invoke her name or something yeah, like-, like that. Which is, again, no spoilers, but it's one clue there, I suppose, to to something that gets revealed in a post-credit sequence. Yeah. So it's worth sticking around for the post-credit sequence. There's also a really good mid-credit sequence as well. In terms of, I guess, the Spidey rankings, and, and, I, and so I'll talk a bit more about it. Yeah, yeah. I'd say this is solidly middle of the table. I don't know. I'd, I'd heard 
some okay reviews of it uh, before, including from you, I think. I think I liked it more than you did. I really like the charm of this film. Um, and I actually thought that the story was good, and I thought that the way it was, it was basically about someone looking for a father figure. He's had the perfect father figure in some ways who has now died, the same way that his previous father figure had died. And he sees Jake Gyllenhaal as someone who take him under his wing, but he has to decide if that's the right thing for him or if he should be breaking out on his own. That whole arc, I thought, worked really well. And I do... I just love the interplay. I had less issues with his arc in this film, actually, than I did in Homecoming. Because in Homecoming, he spends most of the film, including actually the climax of the film, ignoring advice. And then when he doesn't take the advice at the end and everything kind of turns out okay, he ultimately gets rewarded for it. See, I would say that isn't quite the case. I think He almost 9-11s. Yes, we keep saying that, don't we? But, uh, but <laughs> that is a but thing. But he does. But he doesn't. He but he does. averts it. And but he only, the, it's only happening because he's triggered the situation. I don't think that's true. I don't think that that is. It's I like if you try to stop a robbery and somebody gets killed because of it, you, you do... Yeah. I don't think... Yeah, but if you try to stop a robbery and someone gets killed because of it, the people doing the robbery are the villains here. I think The Homecoming is a very good film in terms of he needs to learn how to use his powers. He does escalate things because he's not thinking. By the end, I think it's one of those things where he is... Yes, he certainly de-escalates something by the end of it. A plane. Because he, because he <laughs> turns it away from the city. That's the whole point, is that he takes it to a, to a I, safe area. My issue with that is I think it's a very easily... They could have fixed it very easily by having people be aboard the plane who were at risk as opposed to him putting people in bo- at risk by interfering with the plane, which is otherwise fully automated. <laughs> I, okay. Well, anyway, it's because um, there is an element in this, of course, where he still keeps doing things. There's like a funny moment where he tries to um, to deal with someone with a with a classmate who is kind of being a bit of a pain in the ass, And it is a case of, well, that escalated really quickly. <laughs> And that really made me laugh. But no spoilers, but you will laugh when you see it. it's all set on a bus. Um, but see, I wouldn't put this as high as Homecoming. I mean, my, my ranking would probably still be Spider-Man 2, then Homecoming, then possibly Spider-Verse. Right. Then probably the original Spider-Man film, then probably this. I kind of agree with that. I'd say, do you know what? I think Spider-Man is still the best of the Spider-Man films. I think Spider-Man 2 is really good but I, it's over long there are periods in it where I think the pacing is off then again it does have some of the best moments of any superhero film ever but, um, but I do think it's Spider-Man probably Spider-Man Homecoming then Spider-Man 2 and then yeah Spider-Verse it's weird isn't it because Spider-Verse is one of those where I think the Spider-Verse ha- actually has so much imagination in it it does so many clever things but it wouldn't make any sense without what had yeah, come before and then this one and then Spider-Man 3 and then you're just into the amazing Spider-Man ones, which were both misfires. Uh, so you can give whatever you, yeah, whatever order you want to those, because who cares? <laughs> or that, actually, no. Um, and who got and Emma Stone are both really good in them. Well, the Amazing deserve. Spider-Man 2, I thought, was actually better than The Amazing Spider-Man. The Amazing Spider-Man, I thought, was so boring. But The Amazing Spider-Man 2 was really good right up until the end, when it shits the bed in such a mean way, in such a terrible way, because that's one of the things, what you were talking about in Homecoming. In Spider-Man 2, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, a promise is made to a character. He directly goes against, and it then does result in the death of another character. It's like, well, if you had done what this person said, that wouldn't have happened. And you did it for selfish reasons. 
that's the worst kind of script writing. Right. I can't believe that. To, was... to quote the uh, the character he actually lies to, he's an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> he's an asshole. <laughs> right. Yeah, to paraphrase that, he's an asshole. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah, you're right. This is kind of in the middle and Spider-Man films. And I think I think the setup's a bit rushed. I think there are lots of really nice moments. I think the setup's a bit rushed because obviously it really wants to get them on the trip quite quickly. I think the villain, in terms of the broader villain, the, the, the sort of is is quite generic, but it's done for such a specific reason. A lot of the things that seem to be flaws or don't seem to be working after a certain point in the film sort of draw it. You, you see them from a different angle and you go, okay, that's why they've made that decision. Yeah, and I have to admit, I did kind of see that coming. Um, there's, I mean, I don't. Yeah, you don't need to be a master chess player to see what. Yeah, the moves they're making here, but there were still some surprises when yeah the film goes further on into the plot and really starts to do country hopping or the European country hopping. And there's some nice like MCU callbacks. Yeah, some really good ones actually. It's, um, I like the fact that they call the Infinity War the blip. The blip. So everyone being wiped out is called the blip because for the people who were gone, it was almost like a blip. Yeah, they were there, then they weren't, then they were back again. And there's a really, really nice bit of phone footage when they're filming uh, the school band in the school gym and they'll disappear. And then when they reappear, it's very funny. Which I thought was really well done because it is quite disturbing when they all disappear and everyone starts freaking out. And also, people would have died on their return. Like, let's say you like, you know, you know, bought the apartment and you decided to put up an interior wall. Have don't we... think about that. And you don't think about <laughs> it either. <laughs> or that's the thing, people like... who blipped and they were previously on planes. That's what I was thinking. That's always what I think about. It's like, what if you're on a plane and you blip back in midair and then plummet to a terrifying death? Or the person who, who was you know, in the deep sea submersible when they blip. And then just basically get crushed into like a Coke can. Yeah, or, yeah, or the astronaut in space. Yeah, indeed. It's like all these contingencies that you would have to, that you couldn't possibly plan for because it's, five years later or something and yeah, so nobody yes. move <laughs> nobody move for five years we're just going to make sure this is all going to be okay that's the one kind of flaw with that whole plot that you can't really get that much into because it's like well stop thinking about that then but yes there's uh, there was another one as well that I thought oh yeah no just the fact that at the beginning of Homecoming after Civil War doesn't it say something like eight years later yeah they've they've, they've admitted they've basically screwed the timeline Let's just say the guy who's writing the super titles isn't anymore. But you're thinking, but they would have had the plan there, and they would have had like a basic timeline that wouldn't have accounted for an eight-year jump. It's weird. So, but um, I think you know the cast again are great. Tom Holland, Zendaya, Ned Battle, you know the young cast are all you know incredibly charismatic and funny and offbeat and have a lot of charm. And Jake Gyllenhaal is a really good addition. Jake Gyllenhaal, who I think he, he did an interview where he says in different ways he references a lot of his the characters he's best known for outside. And you get you do get lots of different flavors to Mysterio in terms of you do, don't you? There's an element that he is an older Donnie Darko. Mm. And the, the tragedy that befell the Donnie Darko character has kind of not really broken him, but made him like a nicer person, made him more empathetic. He had some really good scenes with Tom Holland. Yeah. Uh, it's just some really, really nicely played scenes. The writing's really good and the performances are really good. And I do like the, the scene in Prague is very good. The set pieces are good, I thought, in this. I mean, all of them were, I thought, yeah, pretty yeah, watching, watch, yeah, watching the Prague one was like, did make me think, I want to go back to Prague. <laughs> just... Yeah, it is well done for its, um, its different locations. Because Venice is all shot in daylight, yeah, quite pastely. Prague is at night, and they really, really draw out the shadows. And, yeah. yeah. And I think... that like... London's quite overcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think I saw them shooting, actually. I think I, I, At one point, the, uh, the London Bridge was shot off for shoot for filming last year. Oh, wow. And I went, I'm pretty sure it was this. 
Yeah, I think I think this was initially intended to be the first film of the next phase of the MCU because there is a line in it where they're talking about oh that we go you know where they're doing the student video and they talk about let's go into the next phase of our lives. But obviously they chose this to be the final one of this phase to kind of book it. Isn't and it's a nice bookend. It does work. And the uh, yeah. the mid credit is probably mid credit and to a lesser extent the end credit sequences are probably the most impactful probably of any of the credit sequences in the MCU in terms of just setting up an immediate future for the character and immediate I'd say maybe yes, other than Iron Man or yeah, the, because isn't isn't the first Iron Man when the, the Avengers Initiative, in, yeah. yeah, and says I'm here to talk about the Avengers Initiative, and it's like oh well, so you are going to stick with this then, so you're basically putting all of your money on this one hand, and then every other studio said yeah, we'll do that as well with the Dark Universe, which was the Universal aborted horror one, and many many other things, Percy Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> that was before, wasn't it? You may find two of those. They were right. Yeah, and that was more of a Harry Potter. We just need a Harry Potter. I'm trying to think of, are there any other? Yeah, because in Civil War, it's it's basically introducing Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, there are some. I mean, the mid credit sequence here. One is really funny. It has a really no, great... Civil, Civil War. It's not because they're in Ultron. Quicksilver and Scarlet no, Winter Soldier. Winter, sorry. So Winter Soldier. Winter yeah. Soldier. Yeah. Yes, good pickup. I won't have to apologise for that on the next one. <laughs> The, um, did we have anything in particular to apologise for on this one, or did we fix did, did we fix it in post? You fixed it in post. Well, no, actually, the only one that I was going to mention here, and I completely forgot to mention, of course, is that the uh, on the previous episode was when we had to put in the um, a correction that Ronan did. So, regular contributor to the Electric Shadows podcast, Ian Bird, got his lad, and I'm sure you would have heard it. Him and his lad Ronan did a very nice review of Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and. Ronan, who's such an expert on kaiju films, uh, spotted a couple of mistakes that had been made in in our part. So I got them to record a correction there. Love being corrected uh, by a child. <laughs> the reason but, I started this podcast was so that a ten-year-old could correct me about Japanese cinema. <laughs> I don't no, see it was, that as a threat to me but, anyway. But no, he, it, it was you know lovely having uh, both him and Ian on, in, in on the podcast talking so positively and so and so knowledgeably about a topic which you know I think I think one thing I'm, I'm glad about this episode is that it does feel like I'm able to be a little I'm being I'm able to be more positive with the films that we're covering I don't feel like quite such quite such a grump with these ones well you know if you have legitimate criticisms of, of a film you should uh, always air them but um but yeah I think these two films I mean I think that you're going to be much more positive about Midsummer than me uh not saying who's right there I'm right <laughs> And the London scene, I like the fact that they set uh, the set piece around Tower Bridge because all the posters have the London Eye and it's like the London Eye is so obvious because Tower Bridge is such a great landmark but it has not really been used that much in no. films recently, has it? It's uh... it's in Sherlock Holmes, isn't it? Yeah, but that was back in 2009, wasn't it? So sure. uh... I think you find it's back in the Victorian era, Rob. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so... Um... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um... I do like the cast. I like Tom Holland is just a really good Spider-Man. Yeah, he is. He is in there, and he is just so kind of personable. There's actually a really nice piece of footage on YouTube of him going to a children's hospital as Spider-Man oh. and basically talking to these kids about being Spider-Man. Um, it is one of those where you kind of yeah, you have something in your eye watching it. Actually, I think I think he literally has done an interview recently where he said actually obviously the first one was called Spider-Man: Homecoming, and we shot it in the states, and obviously he's a Brit. Yes. He said, and actually the other one's called Spider-Man: Far From Home, but we shot it like twenty minutes from where my where my parents live. Oh, the magic of the movies! Uh, so Zendaya, who is MJ, MJ, but is also Casey Undercover. So in my professional capacity, I look after a kids' proposition of content, and was watching Casey Undercover, which is a Disney show, and thought. 
She looks like Zendaya. Probably Zendaya, isn't it? That's Zendaya. Okay, right, so that's where she started then. How long did that take place in your head, just so I could just get a time frame? <laughs> Probably about the time to the second half, but I was saying, okay, so Casey Undercover, that's you know, a popular show. Let's have a look at this one then. She looks like Zendaya, and then that happened. Um, what happened? <laughs> I said, oh, she looks like Miley Cyrus. I think it is Miley Cyrus. <laughs> and then uh, Billy Ray was Mysterio. So there we go. Oh, there we go, that's She's really good. She's as good an MJ as um, Kirsten Dunst. Dunst. Yeah. And, and, uh, and again, uh, Jacob Batalon, who plays Ned, mm. who is, is good. And, and this and is Ned a, is... Uh, sort of Peter's best mate. Yeah. Um, and as is uh, like uh, Tony Rivoli as Flash. Like a slightly, eight, like, you know, Flash was always meant to be the burly jock. Yeah. But even he has some... Um, some nice kind of shading. Yeah. There's just a, a really nice small moment at the end. It doesn't take up hardly any any screen time, but it's just a nice moment that gives a bit of background to his character. That's the thing that the MCU can do really well. It can just give you some emotional weight really quickly to characters that you're not expecting. And there's also some nice stuff. And this again, this is in the trailer, so it's not a spoiler. The fact that he really likes Spider-Man and just gives Peter abuse. Yeah, that's really well done. That's because Spider-Man's a hero. All right, Parker, you douche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that stuff was really good. What's his name's in it? Don Favreau, uh, soon to be given his own private jet, I think, when The Lion King you, does. You don't think... He's, billions and billions around the world. I mean, yeah, he's uh, he's definitely already got the private jet. But, uh, probably has, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah of course. Because he did Jungle course. Book. And, and one thing, I, I, I and I, obviously he directed Iron Man going to the back. Um, my housemate, Alex, you know, interviewed him and, and said, yeah, he's just on it. He just knows exactly... He's across everything, and that's one thing everybody says. He's clearly an incredibly talented, proficient filmmaker and producer. So it's like... So what did Alex interview him for? I can't remember. I, I, it could have been the Chef TV show. I don't know. Oh, but, yeah, right, yeah. but yeah, it was... I don't, I, don't, I don't know if it was anything MCU related. Might have Actually, might even have been for this. Might even have been for uh, Far From Home, because Alex was on set Cause he for it in... in uh, sorry, he hasn't directed anything since Iron Man 2, has he? Before, I don't he? think so. I think he's... A, I know he's a producer. I'm, I'm yeah, pretty yeah. sure he's a producer on it, and... Because, of course, he did The Jungle Book, which proved that remaking old classic Disney films could work, which is why they gave him Lion King. Old I... rope, old rope, shiny new rope. <laughs> is it me, or is Lion King going to just absolutely obliterate every other film at the box office? I'd be very surprised if it didn't. I saw Lion King once at the cinema in 1994 and thought, oh, that was very good. Never saw it again, but... I'm quite excited to see this Lion King. And if, if I'm excited, then it's just going to tidy up. I mean, could it do more money than Endgame? Mm. I don't think so. I mean, if it does... It will be the biggest film of all time yeah, because it so will take Avatar. Bittersweet for certain people at Disney, but... Yeah, but I'm sure they'll be... Crying, crying all the way, way to their, their private jets, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's even better. Um, crying all the way to their fleet of private jets. So do you want to talk about the director? Oh, uh, yes, the uh, John Watts. Who's having just the weirdest career in terms of... It was Spider-Man Homecoming. It's now this one. His film before that was Cop Car. And his film before that was a killer clown movie. Yeah. And Cop Car was the Kevin Bacon one about the corrupt cop who is chasing a couple of kids who have nicked his cop car and it has incriminating evidence in it. Really, really good, very small indie film. But... Apparently they looked at it and went, yeah... I don't know, it must be one of those where it's like, he can do the other scenes around all the effects and... Yeah, I guess they, mu- they must have like a, a long list of candidates and just kind of work, they'll whittle it down and at the end of it there, John Watson, they went, welcome aboard. Yeah, dude. Um, and Chris McKenna and Eric Summers are the writers who are a writing team. Also did Spider-Man Homecoming and also did Jumanji. Did they the do jungle. the upcoming Jumanji? 
Do you know what? I don't know. Um, let's have a look. Because, because I, I don't think we've got time to talk about that in detail, but obviously the first trailer for that landed. And it looks like they've done... It looks like they've, they've literally shaken things up a bit, so they're doing something quite interesting with what could have got tired very quickly. Yeah, I need to watch that trailer. They're not down here as doing it. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so the last thing that they've got is Spider-Man Far From Home. So it might Slackers. Be Slackers. But they also did Ant-Man and the Wasp. The really, really good MCU film. <laughs> growing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> there is a growing resistance movement rising for Ant Man and the Wasp, which is me, our friend Adrian. Hello, Adrian. Regular listeners to the podcast, and also was on the Bill Hicks one. And Ian. All men of a certain age like Ant Man and the Wasp. <laughs> Don't know what that says yeah. about anything, but. In all fairness, it's, you know, it's, good. it's good to have a resistance sometimes so you can crush it and reiterate the straightest quo. <laughs> or the resistance becomes the new norm and as we've seen with every single revolution it becomes worse than what was before <laughs> so and if there's one thing I think we can all agree is Ant-Man and the Wasp was definitely worse than what came before no it really wasn't it was so much better than Ant-Man um, cool so is there anything else that we're missing from Spider-Man Far From Home in this quite rambling discussion of it it will be interesting to see what comes next, both for Spider-Man, because you yeah do stay for the mid-credit scene if you can't stay for the end scene, but just try and stay for both of them. But Black Widow, it's like I just don't think enough has been laid as a foundation for there be, but to be a Black Widow. Why movie. I think it might work because it's kind of them saying, okay, let's take a look at the character who has uh, yeah who's dead now, um, but in a way that uh, yeah, uh, That's we don't we don't re- <laughs> I think it's good that we're going. There's no expectations. We have no idea of what to expect in a way that you know this is the first you know non sequel they've done in a while. Could be the start of the new phase, but it also seems like holding pattern film for Black Widow because it's like well she can't play any part in the new phase unless they undercut it and bring her back somehow which would then completely or undermine unless they her sacrifice. Set, unless they set up a new uh, a successor to her which does seem like that film is doing or, or somebody with whom she has a connection um, and I believe in the film they are played by and this is a, this is a good segue I'm Go gonna say, played by Florence Pugh really? yeah what the new Black Widow? yeah alright oh, that's a really really good segue Quickly, just go <laughs> to that <laughs> well because there's right so many different things no, Scott Johansson, hashtag not my Black Widow. <laughs> Scott Johansson is Black Widow for me. Florence Pugh, hmm, that would be interesting. I can kind of see why she kind of has that Scarlett Johansson vibe to her. So Spider-Man, Far From Home, I would say, yes, go watch this film. It's, yeah. a, it's a good superhero film. Uh, it has, it manages to balance being a just a really good Spider-Man story with all the great things that you like about Spider-Man, the, the teen hormonal difficulties that are coupled with the big world-threatening events as well as being a continuation of the MCU story quite neatly I thought I mean yeah I mean, yeah, it's no Avengers Endgame but on the plus side it's no Ant-Man and the Wasp either hmm. yeah whatever Endgame though I am looking that, that gets released to buy in September now when I saw that again when we saw it at the Empire Limax on Leicester Square I think is it a five star film I need to watch it again but I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I'm thinking it was four star just because I don't think all the time travel lands. But I think it's an incredibly ambitious, largely or hugely successful. It probably is four stars. I think it was just it was so good to see it in I, IMAX I, because I, it was pretty much all shot in full IMAX. I so. wouldn't argue against if somebody said if you think it's a five star film, it's not one I'd put up a fight on. It's not no, one. indeed, yeah. One I would put up a fight on is Midsummer. Speaking of Florence Pugh, 
Just bringing it around. Did, did we speak of Florence Pugh? I'm sorry, that feels like ages ago. Yes, and it feels like you trampled all over my segue. <laughs> sorry. Which did get a five-star review from Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian, and I do not think Midsummer's a five-star film. What I do think it is, is a much more successful film than Hereditary, the previous film made by Ari Aster, who before that had made lots of shorts that were also about family dysfunction, and family dysfunction and weird family dynamics really is his thing. Well, yeah, I think it's kind of grief and dread are kind of the two. (laughs) Because both, and I think we can say this without without spoiling anything, is that, yeah, both Hereditary and Midsummer deal with those at the centre. They deal with the idea of loss, a loss so profound that, you know, it basically shatters you. It's impossible, almost impossible to recover from. And I think it's mostly, I think... And I think you'd agree with this. Midsummer's approach is both in terms of length; it's two and a, it's two and a half hours, versus Hereditary, which I think was which was substantially shorter. And in Not substantially, it was over two hours. Really? Yeah, it was. It was, uh, it was over long as well. And this is much better. And I tone, I think, tone in this. Yeah. So just to quickly get into what this is about, a couple travels to Sweden to visit a rural hometown's fabled Midsummer Festival. What begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult. Yeah, that's not entirely... No, it's a bit spoilery, isn't it? Well, not um, even a bit spoilery, it's just a bit inaccurate. I mean, for one thing, it's not a couple. It's, they, they go as a couple, but they go in a group. Yeah, that's the IMDb thing, they're their own. Um, so basically, so Florence Pugh plays Danny, who had something quite traumatic happen to her recently, um, and she decides to go on a trip with her boyfriend, Christian, played by Jack Rayner, to Sweden. So they're all students, and Josh, who's played by William Jackson Harper, who people in the know will know as Cheedy from The Good Place, and he's brilliant in that. He's doing a thesis, he's an anthropology student, he's doing a thesis on different cults and things like that, and... Summer festivals and old. Couldn't they probably identify that as a commune, I guess, rather than a commune? That's right, yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, And the old rituals and traditions of these different communes. They're also joined by Mark, played by Will Porter, who is kind of along for the ride. He's a good time guy. Yeah, the lads are planning to go on their own, but Danny kind of graphs on uh, to this trip as well, and they go to stay in this very, very idyllic nice rural commune in Sweden, out in the middle of nowhere, and they observe the rites and traditions of this commune. And it's clear that there are some of the rites and traditions are a little bit uh, away from what they regard as normal, and from there, things become quite freaky. Tough one to talk about, I think, um, without giving away some big spoilers, but... Rob, you said you thought you could do a non-spoiler version, so what are your opinions of Midsummer? I really enjoyed it, and actually, yeah, unlike Hereditary, I can say that I enjoyed it. I, I, th- I think I think Hereditary is a far better film than you do, but the tone on this was... Hereditary is oppressive, Hereditary is bleak and shocking, and there, there, is, there is violence in this, but I don't think it's, it's not as shocking or as in your face it is as, as in Hereditary, and... Yeah, I mean, Midsummer, for one thing, it's incredible. It's an incredibly bright film. It's shot almost entirely in daylight mm. in fields. It reminded me a little bit, in that regard, obviously it's not in black and white, but it reminded me a little bit of a field in England. Yeah, yeah. And and there's some there's some, some sort of experimental, sort of slightly more trippy, psychedelic touches to it. And yeah, it's about, it's about basically this, this group of people arriving in a place whose customs they don't know 
And a lot of it, I mean, it's very rooted in pagan horror, in, in sort of talking about The Wicker Man, and also in sort of Bergman films, I think. There's a lot of Ingrid Bergman in there. Ingmar. In what way is it uh, like, like Bergman? I think just in terms of the observation and the interaction between the characters. I'm, uh, I, I, want, I had a specific point on it that's gone out of my head. I'll see if it comes back to me. Okay. I think it's, um, it's Cries and Whispers I'm thinking of. No, I mean, I, I'm not sure. The uh, I mean, I've only seen a handful of Bergman films. I think Bergman films are much more psychologically rigorous in how they examine their characters than this one. I thought this one is... I don't think there was a lot of depth to the characters. I think it was all pretty superficial. Um, Cries and Wicker Man? <laughs> Cries and... Yes, indeed. Cries and Wicker Man. But it does have that... I mean, yeah, it definitely does have a um, a European feel to it. And it, and it's, it is interesting, obviously, and trying to approach... Uh, make Yeah, I mean, Harry Astor himself would describe it as a horror film and trying to approach that from sunlight... Hereditary, I found myself tense throughout it. And in this, I think it's a lot... There are moments where it's almost, I think, slightly transcendent in terms of its depiction of violence and, and again, overcoming emotional trauma. With Hereditary, it just drills down into the nastiness and the ugliness and the fraughtness. And it does, to the extent that it feels like there's no escape. In this, it does actually feel that despite all of that and some, you know, I wouldn't say this for all... I would, oh, I'm sure certain participants in it wouldn't agree. <laughs> but it is about um, Florence Pugh's character, Danny, yeah. overcoming. And yeah. and again, I don't think there's anything that... You know, it is very grounded in the pagan horror films and those rights and the customs and traditions. And I don't think there's anything in there that is going to... It, again, shocking but not surprising. Um I thought. I mean, I thought this was much better than Hereditary, a film that I don't. I don't know. I don't get the love for Hereditary. Um, I think that the first half, the grief completely smothers the horror to the point where I don't think that Ari Aster actually understands how a horror film works. The second half just convinced me that he doesn't because it just went into such hokey horror film cliches and well conventions, but cliches really that it, I just thought it just got very very silly. Midsummer does have moments in it that could be silly because they are so freaky. But I think here he he introduces humour, and that's the thing that makes this better than Hereditary because it isn't just one absolutely deadening tone. It is lots of different tones. There are moments of tension. There are moments of um, of real dread, and then where he mixes tones. So you have dread, but there's also a certain transcendence. There's a scene that I think is going to become one of the famous scenes of the year that's all set in a quarry. And that just reminded me of a Jodorowsky film. I think there's another scene set in a barn that's going to become one of the famous films of the year. So finished scenes of the year. Yes, do you mean not the very end scene in the barn, but the one before that? Yes. Yes, indeed, yeah. There is a scene in a barn that actually a lot of people, including myself, did laugh at at the cinema, but pretty much in the right way. Yeah. It's, it understands how kind of freaky and absurd it is, but it is also... It's not disturbing. It's just one of those things where it's like... Odd. It's odd, a, yeah. You just, it's just so freaky. You get this sense that this is a, a group who have a completely different set of rules. So for this, it's completely normal for them, but there's someone for whom this is just not normal, and watching it, you are anchored uh, with that person. And I think uh, one thing I did like I did like the group dynamic. Obviously, it's it's very horror film. Oh, here's a bunch of different character types, but they all felt quite grounded and like natural. You've got um, Jack Raynor as Christian, who's Danny's boyfriend, who's he's just a bit weak and a bit hopeless. But the thing and, that's what I got, and he, he's just completely unequipped to deal with what he's going through, and he doesn't really have any any strength of character. He's just you say that because at the beginning of the film, 
he is going to break up with her. This yeah. is at the, at the very beginning of the film, so it's not really a spoiler. He chooses not to break up with her, ultimately because it's kind of the right thing to do with what she's going through. Yeah. So I don't think he's a complete villain. I think he's one of those things where it suggests that he will take easy ways out or, or things that would make his life easier. There's a scene where he has an argument with... Josh, um, played by William Jackson Harper, who's found himself cast, and in this obviously in this case is a, in a straight role as an academic. So he's basically playing Cheedy again. Yeah, he's, yeah. Um, I thought there was enough going on with some of the characters that. Uh, wow, sorry, very quickly. William Jackson Harper is thirty-nine. Wow, then he is aging pretty darn well. No, I would have put him down as about twenty-six. The thing for me with this film. And I did like this film, and I did have a really good time watching it. And it is two and a half hours long, and I wasn't bored. But the thing for me is that no one in this film acts like they're in a world where, one, the Wicker Man exists, or two, any cult exists, really. Because it does follow the broad beats of a cult film, of a, of a cult-themed film, so closely that I was waiting for someone to say, hang on a sec, does no one remember, choose any cult? And apparently there is a Waco mention at the very beginning when they first get there. But it's like, I, as the film goes on, they need to be saying, but, no, 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 Andy said, this is obvious. Clearly, there's there's something else going on. But I quite like, I mean, obviously it only goes so far, how, at least in the early scenes, they do rationalise it. They do go, okay, this is a different culture than ours. We're here to respect it. What seems very odd and cult-like to us is obviously a matter of tradition for them, and we need to... But there's a point where it does... Kind of tip then, into... And it does, and that's the thing. And again, I don't, I don't think that Ari has seen enough horror films. It's like, you are sticking very close to the conventions that every audience will know. Every audience will kind of know the broad beats that this film is going in. They won't know some of the weird, freaky shit that you've come up with, but they'll know enough that they'll be saying the characters should be kicking up a bit more of a fuss, particularly halfway through and then on, on I think. And of course, it's, it's nice seeing Will Poulter in. He's just got that this look of kind of incredulity it is incredulity but in this he proved himself as very good as someone who could just play someone who is quite boorish doesn't know when he's been a pain in the arse doesn't understand why people think he's been a pain in the arse and well you know, apart from son of rambo obviously do you know what his first kind of big mainstream role was was it we're the millers uh no it was eustace in Vo- in in um print in voyage of the dawn treader in, oh, right, in, okay. in chronicles of narnia okay. it, it, uh, I did see the, the boorish one the, the, obno- the, 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 the obnoxious cousin who's kind of there and takes the gold and gets transformed into the dragon. And I didn't see that. I saw Prince Caspian, so I've not seen that one, yeah. Um, um, but also, and, okay. also, and also because he does have a wonderfully, you know, uh, sort of joker, like rictus. He's got that yeah. smile as a certain quality. You see why? I, th- I don't know if he was ever cast, but I know that he was in contention for Pennywise. He was, oh, okay. he was yeah, like yeah, Pennywise that, yeah. at one point. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, he, he does have a face that can be like a quite, good mate yeah. or can be quite cruel. The thing that I thought about this film, yeah, same as you, with um, visually, it was really quite striking, and the fact that it was set in broad daylight for pretty much the entire film. It's in Sweden when they get during the summer. There's about an hour of darkness a night, and then it's not really that dark. Worked really well because, as much as shadow and darkness can build a sense of dread, just being on this commune in bright sunshine where you can't hide. <laughs> also gives a sense of dread. It's like everything's out in the open. There is just no privacy. To the point where they all kind of basically live and sleep in that big barracks. Yeah, yeah. That's very, very nice. multi-level, kind of open plan. And there's a lot of imagery in there that's like, yeah, phallic and vaginal. And so you can say, yes, I can see, particularly around the Florence Pugh character, I can see why this imagery is tying into a lot of things. 
particularly at the climax, obviously giving nothing away. But again, it seems very Freud 101, Symbolism 101, and Horror Film 101. It's just that he is a director of some talent, particularly around set pieces. But I'd be interested to see a straight drama by him, because I think, to be honest, it's like the things that he does with horror films don't really add anything to the horror films. I think there are much smaller films that are less praised that do this sort of stuff a lot better. Yeah, I would be interested to see a straight drama by Ari Aster. So on that note, is there anything else that we should be telling our audience about before we wrap up? No, I think we've, I think we've covered that in, in pretty good detail, in right. pretty good non-spoilery detail. I haven't seen the trailer yet for Midsummer. I purposely avoided it before seeing the film. I can't imagine how it there. doesn't. Oh, really? There's nothing in there. All right, well, that's good. That's quite surprising as well. well basically, skips the first act. It basically includes just, anything from Act Two or Three. Then it's going to have some spoilers in it. No, just people twirling in fields, basically, and oh, so they've gone Terrence Malick, really. Yeah. <laughs> so it looks like a really, really boring film, <laughs> which it isn't. Oh, um, you know, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Willems, um, Patrick. Willems. Patrick Willems. Yeah. Have you seen his? He does a really. He's done a really good documentary recently on Terrence Malick. No, I haven't. It's in my watch list, but I've not watched it yet. It's, it's worth it. As is his. As is, is his one on the Matrix, given of course, and the Matrix, particularly the Matrix sequels, given that it's the twentieth anniversary. This, well, which I haven't seen that one either. I'm actually a few behind on what he's done. Cool. Cheers for the tip. I won't give it a look, and you should too. Well, the next one we're going to do will be one of our big lookbacks with Ian, which we'll be recording at the beginning of August, but I won't get time to edit it until September. So probably, well, Lion King's out soon, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, Lion King's out on the 19th. Yeah, so a week on Friday. So it's, it's possible we'll do the Lion King. Yes, we could do Failing that, it would, of course, be Hobbs and Shaw. Which is the Fast and Furious Presents film with Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham going full superhero by the looks of this oh, now. Oh, yeah. I mean, Idris Elba is a supervillain. In fact, um, you know, if we don't see it before then and they don't do a screening here, we could see it on our day off. We could see it uh, along with the Kubrick exhibition if the timing's well, work. It's not out at that point, is it? It's out on the 1st of August. But we're doing the Kubrick thing on the 22nd. Yep, yes, yes, that's why. We could see Lion King, though. There will be a Hobbs and Shaw episode because I'm putting my money down now. Hobbs and Shaw, film of the year. <laughs> Dwayne Johnson, Jason Satham, Vanessa Kirby, Idris Elba. How can this film not be the best film of the year? Um, We'll see what happens when I see it. And also, uh, this year, I'm glad to announce, and if nothing happens to change this, we will both, both be (laughs) attending Fright Fest. Yes, we both have weekend passes for Fright Fest. We're trying to get a podcast with at least two of the organisers of Fright Fest. Hopefully, because of course it is the 20th Fright Fest this year. Ironically, I covered Fright Fest in probably more detail than I have done for a few years last year, but didn't go to it because we were in Stockholm for Ben's wedding. But I managed How to watch it? a lot of. Almost been married a year. I know, it's mad, isn't it? But I managed to watch a lot of the films beforehand uh, and interview some people around it, but this year, because it's the 20th, uh, yeah, going to try and bring it the same level of attention. So, yes, yeah, so we will both be doing Fright Fest, so there will be, hopefully, be a pre pod. Well, even if we can't get to sit down with the organisers, we can still do a here's what we're looking forward to. So, um, And then we'll do a Fright Fest wrap-up afterwards as well. Uh, any more for any more? I think I'm done. Well, then I would recommend that you go and see Spider-Man Far From Home. And if you're in the mood for a freaky film, go and see Midsummer. 
I'll go and see it with a mate just because it will be fun to talk about afterwards. I saw it on my own and thought mm, it would be good to uh, talk about the pros and cons of that film with someone. Yes. So, as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for listening. And we will speak to you again very, very soon. Mm-hmm.